Welcome to the Oakcrest Podcast Channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. In this podcast, Laura O'Neill, Oakcrest Class of 1996, speaks to parents about how to bolster their relationship with their daughters. She is passionate about the fact that parents matter now more than ever in raising their daughters to thrive as women in today's culture. Laura holds a Master of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Divine Mercy University and works as a psychotherapist at Alpha Omega Clinic in Fairfax, Virginia. It's so good to be here tonight. And it's really, really good to see so many people who care about what I care about. <laughs> um, and that this topic attracted you. It really, really moves me, actually, to see us all here tonight on a Saturday night. Um, wanting to talk about what we really know. Parents matter more than ever. So, <clears throat> Mary, thank you for that introduction. I always like hearing my accolades. <laughs> <laughs> and I know if I have a, a former student and, and it just, I mean, that's really cool. Time marches on. So, so this book, oh, here it is. Hold on to your kids. Uh, why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers by Dr. Gordon Neufeld and Dr. Gabor Mate, both Canadians. Uh, Gordon Neufeld is a child psychologist, uh, clinical psychologist, not, I guess maybe not only just with children, but mostly family and children work. Um, Gabor Mate, really a phenomenal physician, also author. A lot of people have heard of him. He's done a lot of uh, really good, like, little sound bite that accompanies some of his books to, and really help people understand addiction and trauma. I respect both of them tremendously. But when I read this book, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. This is what I'm feeling in my work with young people, not only in my work as a therapist now, but, but in my work as a school nurse for, for many, many years being at that intersection of um, I just said it to Nancy, make it the nurse here, that when we're with teenagers so often, you're not sick, but you're not well. <laughs> and in that gap of being between, right? We all know it, right? How many of you know and love a teenager who's often not sick, but not well? <laughs> yes, yeah. So those are my favorite people. They really are genuinely my, my favorite people because they're learning to understand themselves. And when I, I, I love the feeling of being with a teenager who's like super into me. Probably you all do too. I don't know how often it happens, but I like love that feeling. And when I read this book, it, it, it reminded me, it didn't remind me, it told me my job as a therapist now is to be the matchmaker from your girl back to you. That is my job is to take whatever happened in, the, in, in attachment. I'm not saying it had to be a massive rupture for me to be talking to your kiddo, but my job is to be a matchmaker back to you. Because you, your heart, your voice, that's who they deeply, deeply crave, they're so hungry for it, and they never knew. But they're so hungry for it. So, I can't say enough about this book or about Gordon Newfeld, the Newfeld Institute. He puts out a lot of content. Um, 
He's got a lot of courses you can sign up and just take, you know, click through the slides and just kind of get familiar with what people now refer to as the Neufeld Attachment Developmental Theory. Because attachment theory, which is what his uh, you know, premise is based on, has, is not new. There's, we've understood for a long time how important it is for babies, they, they come out of the womb wanting to be attached, they cling to the mother, right? It's very obvious. But then what happens um, as that attachment changes, and if there's a wound, we know in marriages there can be attachment injuries. As a couple that's attached to each other, maybe there's a betrayal, we can help them mend the wound. But isn't it interesting to know that that's actually what happens with children and adolescents. When they begin to not be so much attached to you as a parent and start to turn and be attached to peers, it's an attachment affair. And as such, we can mend it and help them reorient back to who, who it's more ordered to be attached to. So, um, what I'm going to do tonight is go through a large chunk of Gordon Neufeld's words in the beginning of his book, because if you have not read it, that's totally fine. I'm going to read a lot of it to you, just in the beginning. So we set up the scene, and then we're, I want to go through, we'll skip to, kind of towards the end, so you can get a sense of um, his strategy on how to mend some of these wounds that, that might be... Um, already occurring. Now, I'd like to invite you all to maybe take a nice big breath in through the nose, out through the mouth. Because I'm a therapist, everyone to kind of really kind of get grounded in, in their body, arrive in this moment. And I ask you to do that because I have a sense that some people may feel a little prickly as we go on, just to be quite honest. That this kind of content can stir up stuff on the inside. Number one, not my kid. She's talking about all of those strange agents out there. This is not my kid. My kid is at home watching Disney Plus. <laughs> so I know that that's for, and so if that's actually your kid, awesome. But I also know that your kid is one of many, many kids. And they know a lot of other kids, and oh boy, do they tell each other stuff, right? Didn't come from you, definitely came from other kids. So I want to invite you to just notice points tonight where you feel something. Some little shift inside you, some twinge of something. You're not wrong. Just take it as, hmm, there could be some information for me to explore there. And maybe make a note of it for yourself. <clears throat> okay, so beginning. <sighs> Parents matter more than ever. I want to set a scene for you. I changed the words a little bit. 12-year-old Emma is hunched over her keyboard. Her eyes are intent on the computer monitor. It's 8 o'clock at night. Tomorrow's homework, far from complete. But her dad's repeated admonishments, get on with it, fall on deaf ears. Emma has Minecraft open, and she's also on, on Discord at the same time, all while texting with her friends. Gossip about who likes who, sorting out who's a friend, who's an enemy, disputes over who said what at school, the latest on who's hot, who's not. Stop bugging me, she snaps at her father. <clears throat> who, one more time, pops in to remind her about the project due tomorrow. Well, if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, he says, his tone now shaking with frustration, I wouldn't be bugging you. The verbal battle escalates, 
Voices grow strident, and in a few moments, Emma yells, you don't understand anything, as she then slams the door. The father's upset, angry with Emma, but above all, himself, I born again. I don't know how to communicate with my daughter. He and his wife are concerned about Emma. Once, she was a cooperative child. Now it's impossible to control her or even give her good advice. Her attention seems focused exclusively on contact with friends. And this same scenario of conflict is acted out in the home several times per week. Neither the kiddo or the parents are able to respond with any new thoughts or break any of this kind of any of the deadlock. The parents feel helpless and powerless. They've never relied much on punishment, but now they're more inclined to lower the boom. <laughs> when they do, their daughter becomes even more embittered and defiant. I know some of y'all thinking that's not my kid. <laughs> Just go with us, okay? Should parenting be this difficult? Was it always so? Older generations in the past complained about the young being less respectful, less disciplined than it used to be, but today many parents intuitively know that something is amiss. Children are not quite the same as we remember being. They're less likely to take their cues from adults. They're less afraid of getting in trouble. They also seem less innocent and naive. And I think this is really striking. Kids seem to somewhat lack the wide-eyed wonder that leads a child to have sort of excitement for the world, exploring wonders of nature or human creativity, using their imagination. Many children seem inappropriately sophisticated, sometimes even jaded pseudo-mature before their time. They appear easily bored when they're away from each other or not engaged with technology. Creative, solitary play seems part of the past. And then there's a quote. There's a woman, a mother in the book says, as a child, I was endlessly fascinated by the clay that I could have dug out of a ditch in my own backyard. I love the feel of it. I love molding it into shapes and kneading it in my hands. And yet, I can't even get my six-year-old to play on his own, unless it's with a computer or a screen or any kind of video game. You do not have to identify yourself by raising your hand. <laughs> but if you just kind of did a little laugh, I know you know what I mean. Okay. Parenting kind of seems like it's changed. Parents were more confident, more certain of themselves. They had more of an impact on us, maybe, for better or for worse. Today's parents love their children as much as parents ever have, but the love doesn't always get through. I like to say it doesn't always get digested. It doesn't get all the way down the pipe, okay? And this, is very, this is very, very common. Parents have just as much to teach, but their capacity to get the knowledge across has somehow diminished. We don't feel empowered to guide our children towards fulfilling their potential. <clears throat> Sometimes kids act as if they've been seduced away from us by a siren song that we don't even hear. We fear, if only vaguely, that the world has become less safe for them and we're powerless to protect them. The gap opening up between kids and adults seems unbridgeable at times. Um, one of my girlfriends from college was gonna come tonight and she wasn't able to come. And I told her, you know, they're gonna record. <laughs> so I will send it to you. And she said, exactly what this is saying. The world is so scary right now. I'm so glad you're gonna talk about this tonight. But she really actually said like a couple of these bullet points. The world is so scary, I don't really know what to do. 
with my um, daughter, her daughter's um, getting ready to start middle school. <clears throat> so we struggle to live up to our image of what parenting ought to be like. Not achieving the results we want, we plead with our children, cajole, bribe, reward, punish. Um, we hear ourselves address them in tones that seem harsh even for us and foreign to our true nature. And this I have tremendous compassion for. And when parents tell me, I like totally lost, I had an I was practically, <coughs> it was not good. Okay, it, was not, it was not good. When I tell you it wasn't good, it was not good. I'm deep. <laughs> and I'm with you. Because I know it's really, really hard to not lose it sometimes. I know that. Parents feel really hurt, sometimes rejected. Yeah, yeah. And, and parents can also often bear this um, alone. They often turn inward and they blame themselves for failing at a parenting task or for the kid just being um, too difficult, um, the, the television for distracting them. And when our powerlessness becomes unbearable, we reach for simplistic authoritarian formulas consistent with the do-it-yourself, fix-it-quick culture that we're in. And we see that. We see that a lot. Like, not a soft turn, an incremental change, like a massive change. All the electronics out of your room. All of it, you know, um, we're not even gonna, we're not even have Wi-Fi in this house. <laughs> we don't even need it. Daddy has not work. I, we're not even gonna have it, right? Like really big, very catastrophic solutions. <laughs> I mean, I like your style. Okay, I like your style. I feel where you're coming from, but but it's not, um, it's not really sustainable. It's not sustainable. So the importance of parenting to the development and maturation of young humans has always been under question. Okay, let me back that up. Not always, but at least solidly for like the last 20 years, we'll say. 20 years ago, well, a little over 20 years ago, the cover of Time Magazine said, do parents matter? Thanks, thanks. Um, parenting has been oversold, argued a book that received um, a lot of international attention that year. You've been led to believe that you've got a whole lot more influence on your child's personality than you actually do. <clears throat> the question of parental influence might not be quite so crucial as things were going like really, really well with our young people. And we're all here tonight because I think we, we, we wonder if the kids are all right. Um, <clears throat> Committed and responsible parents are frustrated. Despite loving and care, kids seem highly stressed. Parents and other elders no longer appear to be the natural mentors for young people, as always used to be the case with human beings, and is still the case with all other species living in natural habitats. Senior generations, parents, grandparents, a big boomer group, Look at us with incomprehension. We didn't need how-to manuals. I've actually heard that. I've heard people say that. I didn't need any kind of parenting book. It's usually from someone much, much older. Um, we, in our days, we just did it. It's ironic, given the more that we know about child development, we know more now than ever, and we have more access to courses 
master classes, don't get me started on those, and books on childbearing and any other previous generation of parents. So what has changed? This is the whole beginning of Neufeld's book. Context. In a word, context. No matter how well-intentioned, skilled, compassionate we might ever be, parenting is not something we can engage with in just any child. Parenting requires context to be effective. A child must be receptive if we're to succeed in nurturing, comforting, guiding, and directing her. Children do not automatically grant us the authority to parent them just because we're adults, just because we love them, just because we know what's good for them, just because we have their best interests at heart. Step parents are often confronted by this fact, as are others who look after children that are not their own, foster parents, babysitters, nannies, daycare providers, teachers. Even with one's own children, the natural parenting authority can become lost if the context for it becomes eroded. If parenting skills or even loving the child are not, as are not enough, then what is needed? This is the big one. There is an indispensable special kind of relationship without which parenting lacks a firm foundation. And developmentalists call it the attachment relationship. For a child to be open to being parented by an adult, she must be actively attaching to that adult and be wanting contact and closeness with her or him. Attachment relationship. At the beginning of life, this drive to attach is quite physical in nature. An infant literally clings to a parent and needs to be held. If everything unfolds according to design, an attachment will evolve into an emotional closeness and finally a sense of psychological intimacy. Children who lack this kind of connection with those responsible for them are very difficult to parent and often even to teach. Only the attachment relationship can provide the proper context for child rearing. The secret of parenting is not in what a parent does, but rather who the parent is to a child. And in my work now, this is exactly what I see. This is exactly <coughs> what I see. For a child well attached to us, we are her home base from which to venture into the world, a retreat to fall back to, a fountainhead of inspiration. All the parenting skills in the world can't compensate for a lack of attachment relationship. All the love in the world can't get through without the psychological umbilical cord created by the child's attachment. The attachment relationship of a child to a parent needs to last as long as the child needs to be parented, which is a real long time. <laughs> it is. It is. Getting a, a young person to become really mature, man, we want to rush it. And I don't blame anybody for wanting to rush it. I really don't, because it's hard, and it takes a really long time. <coughs> so parents really haven't changed. They're not less competent. They're not less devoted. The fundamental nature of children hasn't, hasn't really changed. They're not less dependent or more resistant. What's changed is the culture in which we're rearing our children. That is what has changed. What's changed, I'm going to say it again for people in the back, is the culture that we are raising our children in. 
Children's attachments to parents are no longer getting the support required from culture and society. Except at Ocrest. <laughs> Let's be real. Except at Ocrest. Okay. Even parent-child relationships that at the beginning are powerful and fully nurturing can become undermined as our children move out into the world no longer, um, that no longer appreciates or reinforces the attachment bond. And this could happen, you guys know. You choose this beautiful, lovely school that's so special and different, and so many parents share the same worldview, but yet you live on a street, and there's other houses, likely, with other people, and this is what we're talking about. This is exactly what we're talking about. So the, the proximity for, for, for things that would go not really the way that you're planning. <clears throat> Children are increasingly forming attachments that compete with their parents, with the result that psychologists and other scientists who study human development for proper context for parenting, the proper context is less and less available to us not for a lack of love or knowledge of parenting. So, that was the first premise that Newfeld offers. Second thing, huge, huge. This is the game-changing thing that I didn't have the vocabulary for. Nobody even gave me this book in grad school, which seems weird, because <laughs> it's so foundational to the way that I understand the human person and, and relationships. The chief and most damaging of the competing attachments that undermine parenting authority and parental love is the increasing bonding of our children with their peers. The, quote, disorder affecting the generations of young children and adolescents now heading towards adulthood is rooted in the lost orientation of children towards the nurturing adults in their lives. <coughs> Maybe this feels super obvious to you. Maybe you're like, yeah, I, that, yeah, they're not listening to me, they're listening to their friends. All that to just kind of sum it up that way. What I hope, if this is hitting you in a place that you kind of understand this and it's resonating already, you, you get this, is that you can have a sense of optimism going forward, that this can be not only repaired, it can be re repaired quickly and have a, a, like a lifelong um, benefit from repairing it the moment you realize that this could be happening. This is not a disorder in the way we want to label everything a medical disorder. This is a disorder in the basic sense, the disruption of the natural order of things. For the first time in history, young people absolutely turn for instruction, modeling, guidance, not to their mothers, fathers, teachers, and other responsible adults, but to people who nature never intended to place in a parenting role, their own peers. They are not manageable, teachable, and maturing people because they no longer take their cues from us. Instead, children are being brought up by immature persons who can't possibly guide them to maturity. They're being brought up by each other. The term that seems to fit more than any other for this phenomenon is peer orientation. I will tell you the very first clue I have when I'm working with a young person that they are very, very peer oriented is they say, usually with tears, I have no one to talk to. And be clear, I'm sitting three feet from them talking to them. <laughs> 
And who drove them to me? Their mom or their dad out there waiting for a check. And they say, through tears, I have no one to talk to. That is the very most, like, if there were a blood test for peer orientation, boom, that's it. I have no one to talk to. When they're sitting right in front of me, and I'll talk about anything they want to talk about. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. <clears throat> it is peer orientation that has muted parenting instincts, eroded natural authority, and caused us to parent not from the heart, but from the head, from manuals, experts, master classes, confused expectations of society. What is peer or what, what is peer orientation? Orientation, the drive to get one's bearings and become acquainted with the surroundings is a fundamental human instinct and need. Disorientation is one of the least bearable of all psychological experiences. So attachment and orientation are inextricably intertwined. Humans and other creatures automatically orient themselves by seeking cues from those whom they're attached to. Children, like the young of any warm-blooded species, have an innate orienting instinct. They need to get their sense of direction from someone. Just as a magnet automatically goes towards the North Pole, children have an inborn need to find their bearings by turning to a, a source of authority, contact, and warmth. You can watch it if you're watching children play, usually. That they very quickly look up. They, they very quickly... It's like a pack. And you learn about pack mentality, right? They know who's, who's in authority. It's fascinating. Children cannot endure the lack of a figure, of such a figure in their lives. They become disoriented. So here's the take-home message, that they cannot endure an orientation void. I'm gonna say that again. They cannot endure an orientation void. The parent, or another adult acting as a parent substitute, is the nature-intended pole of orientation for the child. Just as adults are the orienting influences in the lives of all animals that rear their young. It just so happens that this orienting instinct of humans is much like the imprinting instinct of a duckling. Hatched from the egg, the duckling immediately imprints on the mother duck. He will follow her around, heeding her example and directions until he grows into mature independence. And that's how nature would prefer it, of course. In the absence of the mother duck, ducklings will begin to follow the nearest moving object, a human being, a dog, or even a mechanical toy. They've done studies on this. Needless to say, the human, the dog, or the toy nor the toy are well suited as the mother duck to raise the duckling into successful adult duckhood. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, if no parenting adult is available, the human child will orient to whoever's near. Social, economic, cultural trends in the trends in the past five or six decades have displaced the parent from his intended position as the orienting influence on the child. And the peer group has moved into this orienting void with deplorable results. As the, the data in the book continues to show, children cannot be oriented to adults and other children at the same time. One cannot follow two sets of conflicting directions at the same time. The children's, must, the children's brains must automatically choose between parental guidance, peer guidance, parental guidance, peer guidance, parental culture, peer culture, whenever the two might appear to be in conflict. Are we saying that children should have no friends their own age or form connections with other children? No, on the contrary. <coughs> Those ties are natural and can serve a healthy purpose. 
but in adult-oriented cultures where the guiding principles and values are of the more mature generations, kids attach to each other without losing that bearing of being adult-oriented. But I, I believe, and I think may, maybe many people in this room would agree, that in our culture that's actually not, that's not what is happening. I mean, it's no longer the case. Peer bonds have replaced relationships with the adults. So, what is normal in the sense of conforming to our norm is not the same thing as being natural or healthy. There's nothing healthy or natural about peer Peer orientation. Okay, so now here's this. This is going to be tough. This is a tough little section. Okay. For members of the post-war, World War II generation, born in England and North America, and many others in parts of the industrialized world, our preoccupation with peers is blinding us to the seriousness of the problem. Our own preoccupation with peers is what blinds us to the seriousness of the problem. What masquerades as natural or goes undetected because we've become divorced from our intuitions and because we've unwittingly become peer-oriented ourselves. Culture, until recently, has always handed down vertically from generation to generation. Someone wrote, the youth have been educated in it, and the age rendered wise. But now kids say, things are different now. They'll say, things are different now, they'll tell you. Yet adults really played a critical role in the transmission of culture, taking the, what they received from their own parents and passing it down to children. But the culture our children are being introduced to is much less likely to be the culture of their parents than that of their peers. Children are generating their own culture, distinct from that of their parents, in some ways very alien. Instead of a culture being passed down vertically, it's being transmitted horizontally within the younger generation. So essential to culture are customs, music, dress, celebrations, stories. The music children listen to bears very little resemblance to the music of their grandparents. The way they look is dictated by the way other children look rather than the parents' heritage, cultural heritage. Here we go. Birthday parties, sleepovers, homecoming dresses, I added that. <laughs> and other rites of passage are influenced by the practices of other children around them, not by the customs of their parents before them. This is the challenge in life. If all that seems normal to us, it's only due to our own peer orientation. If you have a little part inside of you that's feeling like, <coughs> Fun. <laughs> That's also due to our own peer orientation. And I have no judgment because I like my peers too. I don't hold judgment for parents who have really, frankly, a burden of a lot of peer orientation happening inside them. But I want you to know that that's what it is. Because this would be wasting your time at best if I was not honest with you about that. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to move along here. We know the current psychological literature, okay, I know the current psychological literature emphasizes the roles of peers in creating a child's sense of identity. But then there's a lot about how important it is in the, in the literature for kids to be with other kids. 
what's absolutely missing in the peer relationship is unconditional love and acceptance, the desire to nurture, the ability to extend oneself for the sake of the other, the willingness to sacrifice for the growth and development of the other. So when we compare peer-oriented relationships, peer relationships with parent relationships, for what's missing, parents definitely come out looking like saints. So, it's very serious because when, when one takes peer orientation, um, anyone who knows me well knows I like to use the expression, let's play that tape all the way through. We play that tape all the way through. The most serious consequences of peer orientation um, are when we look at suicide statistics. And Gordon Neufeld spent some time working in prisons where he really kind of examined people who had uh, survived suicide attempts. But it may not surprise you, it did not surprise him, it did not surprise me to find out that um, the increasing numbers of reports of, of uh, suicides, and in particular childhood suicides, were triggered by peer rejection and bullying. Not parental rejection, peer rejection. The more peers matter, the more children are devastated by the insensitive relating of their peers, by failing to fit in, by perceived rejection and um, ostracization. So that's why it's important to really consider what we're talking about here. That if you take it to, to all the way to the end here, that, that it seems like, well, you know, fortunately my kids' friends are amazing. <laughs> well, that might be true right now, and, and that's great. But when you really think about it, when, when young people remain uh, peer-oriented, these peers that are immature, they're incapable of those really self, selfless um, kinds of loving relationships. They don't even have the intellectual knowledge, much less, much less the ability to have like moral virtues the way parents might. That, that, that a young person might want to take their own life because they, they conceive that that's really what they're living for is this felt sense of safety with their goofball friends. And that's, that's really scary to me. So I, I know I did not want to skip that. Okay. So Gordon Neufeld has a couple of kids, and so does Gabor Mate. And, and they also looked at the data, and they thought, well, maybe perhaps many people in this room are thinking, well, not really my kid. My kids are not, have no interest in any gang activity. They have no interest in any IV drug use. They have no interest um, in any delinquency. They were brought up in the context of relative stability, lots of extended family that love them. But, but what happens is as they get a little older, it's more the normative experience to watch your teenager who went from watching Disney Plus and naked brownies to suddenly getting really private, really private, very touchy about their privacy, um, an extreme draw to their friendships, Announcing things like, well, nobody will be there if they don't have a friend there. <laughs> That's similar in a genre to, I have no one to talk to when they're looking right at you. Um, and uh, less time at home. So a lot of parents will say, weren't we meant to let go? Aren't our children meant to become independent of us? Absolutely. But only when the job is done. Only when the job is done. In order for them to fully become themselves. Children may know what they want, but it's dangerous to assume they know what they need. But they are excellent salespeople, excellent. Um, they put all the passion in it that you could possibly imagine. 
Um, they're not even on anyone's payroll, and they, they really know how to sell you on what they want. To a peer-oriented child, it may seem only natural to prefer contact with their friends rather than closeness with family, to be with friends as much as possible, and to be like them as much as possible. But a child doesn't know best. Parenting takes its cues, a parent that takes its cues from the child's preferences can get you retired before the job is done. Okay, and that's why this book is so important because I've never opened up a book and had something hit it on the head as much as this book because it applies to so many different kinds of families. Families that are trying really, really, really hard. And families that kind of seem like they're phoning it in. It, it, it lands everywhere because these kids know each other. That's why it's not, it's not indicative usually of what's happening in, the, in, in, in you know, what the parents' values really are. Okay, so I think we're going to get into some slides now. <laughs> These are the points that I'm going to cover today. Um, keys to in, in, in children and young people, what children truly need to mature, now that we've set the stage. Because there, it's boom, arrested development the moment they become peer-oriented. Arrested development, that's not really a clinical term. But you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about when you meet adults all day long. Arrested development. Emotions in you, then we're going to talk about the whole uh, section four and five of the book are about like the strategy and to, to, to kind of undo some of this, and that's collecting our children and preventing peer orientation. Um, and just so you know, we'll have a little time for some questions at the end if things are coming up to you that you may have questions about. Okay, obviously, this is the front of the cover of the book. And, I'm, and I just used a lot, a lot, heavily, just setting up so you understand the context and, and Neufeld's particular developmental um, attachment theory. But this is the good news. <sighs> Nature is on our side. Optimism is the engine of resilience. So I want you to know, he's been studying this for a really long time, and I've seen it with my own eyes. I felt it with my own heart. To be with a kid who walks in and is like, I have no one to talk to, even though they live in a house with a pack of people, and then watch them soften and come back and get super into their families and, 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 and open their hearts to their parents again. I see that a lot, and it's actually very beautiful. It, I, I really honor the experience of being with someone who, when that happens. Um, so keys to well-being. Okay. Let me just show my little notes for here in the right order. Um, St. Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. He said a lot of other things. Is that not, is that not one, of the, one of the best? The glory of God is man fully alive. So our lives must be a really good and noble thing when we're really fully human, tapping into all our capacities. Um, and Neufeld says, let's begin with the premise of well-being, that every child has the potential to become fully human and humane. But not every person really does come reach that potential. The unfolding of, a human, of human potential is spontaneous, but not inevitable. 
And from my work, I would posit that I, every child, every human, has inside of themselves a calm, compassionate, curious, clear thinking, confident, courageous, creative, and connected innermost self. And as adults, we must foster that in, in young people. That separate being, that adaptive being, that social being that they are. And yet, as we've just talked about, children don't automatically grant us the authority to parent them just because we're adults. But this is what they were made for. This is their, their destiny if we can help them flourish in this way. So what children need to truly mature? Now I'm going to give you some really short bullet points. What children need to actually truly mature? Mature. I'm going to give you four facts, and then I'm going to go back. For maturation to result, children need to attach to the adults who are responsible for them. So you can just write attach. Two, for maturation to result, children need to find rest from the work of attachment. Three, for maturation to result, children need to play. And four, for maturation to result, children need to feel <coughs> their tender emotions. So we got attach, rest, play, and feel. Now, the attach, as we just made a really, I, I, feel, I feel like a really good case, that really good case, that attachment is where it's at. Attachment is where the influence comes from, um, the passing down of values, health, learning, all outcomes improved. So they need to attach, to find nurturing, nur the nurturance required to support growth. And what I mean by that is, figuring out how to hold on when you're apart. That's how we nurture them to support them being able to grow. Helping them figure out how to hold on when you're apart from them, physically or even emotionally. Children need to attach, to be receptive, to be taken care of, to be managed and to be taught. This, this is um, something that's particularly studied with people who do educational research and how outcomes are impacted with kids who have even one teacher that they can really kind of attach to if they don't, for whatever reason, are not able to attach into their parents. Children need to attach to evoke within the child the desire to be good. Now, this would be an entirely different presentation if I went in on this, and I would love to sometime. Be really good in small groups. Because evoking the desire to be good in a person is, this is what, it's that, on a primal level, helps people understand the filial relationship to God. Really good, deep attachments to parents really helps kids want to be good, and it mimics that way that we want to please our, our, our Heavenly Father. So this is, that's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And then children need to attach to prevent problems that may occur when they face separation. So. Those are the, the, the attach. Over here, we've got rest. They must be able to rest from working for attachment. They must find what they're seeking in you. 
in such plentiful amounts that they don't have to worry that they're not going to be any more if they back off of it. This is how we prevent separation anxiety, and you can quote me on this, all anxiety is separation anxiety. This is how we can really prevent that. When they find attachment in such plentiful amounts that they do not feel like they need to be working for love and approval, because you're all stocked up on it, and they don't have to think in any kind of scarcity mentality. For play, play needs to be unstructured, no outcomes, Sports teams kind of look like play, it's not what we're talking about. Video games look like play, not what we're talking about. I'm talking about what I know you guys would do, because I hear about it. Those family dance parties that are goofy as anything. And you're just being silly, and you're laughing together. And they're laughing. They're, they're, they're little hyenas down the basement, making noise, dancing around siblings, and all that kind of stuff. Unstructured play with no outcomes. Um, and then feel, I said the fourth thing was feel your tender emotions. Having really soft hearts, being able to feel the most tender of inner emotions. Um, people cannot access those tender emotions outside of really strong attachments. Little people or big people. And this is where, again, a whole other lecture for another day, where addiction comes from. We numb ourselves out when we don't feel safe enough to just be in the actual feeling that we're having. So this, is, um, this goes a long way to preventing anyone who feels like, I can't tolerate this feeling that I'm feeling. Just that emotional hospitality. Um, I, I, I put a little note here that if, if anyone feels like, wow, I have a hard time with that. I have a really hard time accessing my feelings, so I don't know how much I can help my kid with their feelings. When they start melting down, I see red, or I go numb, or I walk out of the room and I say to my spouse, get your child, you know? Um, I want to just put a little plug in for the nurtured heart approach. Has anyone ever heard of the nurtured heart approach as a parenting method? Well, <clears throat> I know some of y'all have, but you just didn't raise your hands. Um, so that's fine. Google that, though. That's a really nice yes to all the positives, never, never going negative, having really clear boundaries and consequences, and, and, and it's just a really, really nice parenting um, training. Okay. Emotions and you. Oh, I didn't mean to hit that, but I guess I, I moved the slide along. I'm going to come back, by the way, to that how to attach. I want to slow down here. Emotions in you. Calmness is a graceful form of confidence. Calmness is a graceful form of confidence. And, and how, how difficult is it to be calm? with these people we're talking about. <laughs> it's pretty difficult, I know. Um, but you can practice it. It's something that's a skill that can be practiced. And so I, I put the little feelings wheel on there. You don't have to identify yourself if you've ever seen one of those before. But I want to encourage you all to, as you go about trying to connect with your daughters and your children and each other, spouses, with your, what's happening with your emotional awareness, a lot of people are like mad, set, or glad. Just very basic emotions, satisfied. I remember one time my, my, I, my dear husband, who's in the front row, said to me once, <laughs> do you mind if I use you as a little example? Okay, cool. <laughs> I asked him how he felt about something. And he 
said, I think I just said so. I think we're going to go do that. And I was like, no, 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 no. How do you feel about it? He's like, I think I said I was happy to go. But no, no, you didn't say happy. He was like, I think I said I'll go. Like, he really, really, one time, a long time ago, before you really got a lot of emotional awareness. identifying the feeling that we have. Why is it useful? Because it's hard proof that feelings don't last. You need that proof because feelings feel so big and kids, kids are famous for hiding their big feelings from you. They really are. Not the little tiny ones. They'd be melting down. But I'm talking about the bigger kids. They hide those big, big feelings from you. And you need cold, hard proof that no feeling is final. No feeling is ever final. No one's ever had one feeling and that was the only feeling they ever had. It's just, it just, no feeling is final. So you need to slice feelings thinner to prove, I'm not just mad, sad, or glad. Am I annoyed or am I really kind of just a little irritated? Am I um, apathetic or am I just bored? Am I insecure or am I kind of suspicious? That's one teenager's love. So really slicing emotions very, very thinly is, a, is really helpful to a, remind you your spouse, your kids, it's okay to have that feeling. Look at your watch, you're probably not gonna have it that long. You might have it that long, but it's not gonna be the only one you ever have. And, and that's, that's really important. That's, that's, I would go so far as to say that's one of the backbones of resilience, is to know that feelings pass over. Oh, whoops, uh, I wanna give you one thing. Okay, here's a little exercise on emotions. Accept them, connect with your values, and then take effective action. It's an acronym, ACT. Accept them, connect with your values, take effective action. Here's an example written by a therapist, Natalie Rose. I feel anxious and uncomfortable, and I'm thinking I want to avoid this and stay where it feels comfortable. That might be you noticing the feeling that you have. Connect with your values, but I do value my health, adventure, personal growth, and relationships. Now you take effective action. I'll go to the event, I'll try and do some new foods, I'll interact with my friends, I'll practice being present, my anxiety will eventually fade because I feel better knowing my choices will bring me closer to the life I want. That's the slowing down that I'm telling you it pays dividends when kids understand that you have emotions too. I, 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 I can't really give you a lot of stories like you know I want to because I respect so much the privacy of my clients, but I've heard Many people be shocked that their parents have emotions. <laughs> many, many. I've heard many people be shocked that their parents went to college and changed majors because they see their parents as flawless. Now, I'm not asking you to be giving them the low library because that's not necessarily great role modeling. But what I am asking you to do is just sometimes say your feelings out loud because that absolutely will help a kid just feel human. Like when people ask me, sometimes people ask me, oh, should my 12-year-old my, my, uh, go to a funeral? I think they could get really upset. I'm like, well, they need to see that grief makes a ton of sense to be upset. So yes, yes, you know, um, unless it's like some extraordinary circumstance or, or whatever. But inviting a child in to see that we have feelings and they pass over and they don't last and that's part of the human experience, 
You want to do that whenever you can. Um, okay, collecting our children, moving right along. Collecting our children. So now here's a little bit of the how-to. All right. I just want to say one thing about the emotions. When there's reactivity with some of these moments in your household, we want to catch the reactivity and notice it. Whenever there's reactivity, and I mean heart racing, you're feeling annoyed, you're feeling like you want to tell someone to go somewhere, like that's reactivity, right? You're just feeling snippy out, you know, that's what that is. The, the number one job when you feel reactivity is to handle reactivity. Like stop, drop, and roll. It's not solving the problem, it's not closing the dishwasher, it's not finding your uniform. It's 100% let me get in my body and handle this reactivity. If it means you need to sit on the actual floor to ground yourself, that's fine. So you can't fall off the floor. This is good. So drinking a glass of water or something like that, the key is to catch it before your entire network gets activated. Because that's when you have meltdowns and doing things and saying things that you can't really get back as easily. Okay, collecting the children. So step one, get in your daughter's face. And this is how you do it. So collecting, a collecting dance is actually something that we do even with babies, like my, my sister is there holding my niece Celine, and she is precious. And when I go up to Celine and I see her, I mean, I will bend my body into any position I need to, and I'll do any facial expression in order to make her go, woo, you know, like in coop. That's what we do with babies. We'll do anything we can do to make them smile and light up. This is what we need to do with our girls. Get in their face, or at least in their space. You're not going to be weird. Don't be weird, because that makes you really obsolete very fast. But with no agenda around it. No agenda to actually have them open up. This is going to be the best girls' night out you ever had. Nothing like that. Just in their space or in their space. No agenda, because relationship building is an end in and of itself. Just being with her. Two, provide something for your daughter to hold on to. That's called leaving a kid with a bridge. I'm using Charlotte and Joel again as an example. Their little guy, Remy, is he two and a half or three? Okay, so he goes to the preschool like, like two mornings a week, and they drop him off, and sometimes Charlotte's on speakerphone with me when she's pulling the carpet line, and I hear him, and he goes, and you're gonna come back, and you're gonna come back? That's a bridge. Yep, she always says, yep, I'm coming back. I'm going to be here in a little bit. I'm going to go to Target, then I'm going to come back. <laughs> That's leaving a bridge. That little, little thing is what all kids really want. It's not smothering them to just be like, okay, good, we'll see you. I know. I'll see you after practice. I'll see you at dinner. You know, That's the next time I'll see you. Leaving kids with bridges. <clears throat> Three, in, okay, this is going to shock you. Ready for this? For anyone sleepy, invite dependence. Dun, dun, dun. Oops. <laughs> Invite dependents. Because they are dependent. They're, they're, they're walking with some crutches. And if you invite, if you invite in, independence too quickly, they're only going to transfer their dependence from you out of somebody else. An immature friend. So you may as well invite dependents. If they forget their lunch, and you be running up the road with Chick-fil-A at school. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like not having to be like, okay, I'm not looking at it on Instagram. But sometimes I hear stories from parents who are like, I was doing my laundry when I was 10. Okay, I was doing it. So she could do it. 
I'm not asking you to invite dependents. You don't have to be anybody's like maid. But inviting ways that they really still need you to like get out the door, you know? This is very important. Um, don't be fearful that they're never gonna, don't be fearful that they're never gonna move out. They're eventually gonna move out. <laughs> they're going to mature because maturation takes time. It just takes time. So I'm asking you to invite dependents because Gordon Neufeld's asking you, but also because I see it with my own eyes. I see how that detachment happens prematurely just because someone's trying to teach kids skills. And I see how it backfires. Okay, next. Act as your daughter's compass point. Act as your daughter's compass point. What does a compass do? It points you in the direction that you're going. So the way you say, the way you become a compass point for someone is to constantly be verbalizing things like this. This is what we're doing for today. What I have in mind for this evening is, this is who you should ask for help. You have a special way of being creative. That's like giving a kid, like, like you're telling them, um, I see your identity. Um, you have what it takes to be a comedian. You're the kind of girl who, blank, always helping a kid understand where they are and what they're oriented to. And that, you know, the list goes on and on with those, but that's being a kid's compass. From time to time, it's good for all of us to learn how to listen again. Listen to the people that we love. One of the fastest ways to improve any relationship is to become a better listener. And that's going to be a call to action because I know you all have busy lives and many of you have multiple humans in your household. I know that. Look at your daughter when she's speaking. Not every single time you're allowed to be doing something when she tells you something, but, but from time to time, consciously choosing this collecting dance is to sit and sometimes actually just look right at her and smile, make eye contact, listen with your whole body. Your whole body would be like your arms open, even your hands kind of open, you know, and, and not full and not having, not necessarily having like a device in them. Um, ask questions. Make sure you understand what she's saying by saying, I, you know, what I'm hearing you say is, you think you'd like to go to college close by, not far away, is that right? Okay, yeah, you know, just what I think I hear you saying. Take that, like, kind of that conjecture and let her tell you, yeah, you got me. All that is just really knitting hearts together and solidifying that all the time. Um, those are all collecting our children techniques. Preventing peer orientation. Okay, now I'm gonna, now I save some of the harder stuff for the end. Here we go, don't court the competition. Straight up. The amount of time your kids spend with other kids will only increase the, the probability of being very, very peer-oriented. So just be mindful of that, but be mindful of it on the inside. This is not a, like, I'm gonna go home and tell my, my child, you know what, you've been seeing a whole lot too much of this so-and-so. this one. 
this is a, you have to have some smooth moves here. Okay. Um, sleepovers. You ready for this? Jot this down. Never. Never. I don't care whose house. Never, ever. Yeah. The worst things I've ever heard in my therapy room happen on sleepovers. At the nicest people's house, who are upstairs, in the house, having a dinner party, ordering the pizzas, saying yes to the Disney Plus, and that's where the stuff goes down. I'm telling you, please hear this. There's no reason to ever sleep over at somebody's house unless you want them to have peer orientation and slash a side of potential trauma. So I'm telling you, having your kid fall in love with only being able to sleep in their own bed is one of the best decisions you can make for young people. Even if you've had sleepovers before, even if they're going to sleep over tonight, tomorrow morning's a new day, it could be a new sheriff in town. <laughs> you can blame it on me, too. I, I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm that emphatic about helping people not have bad things happen to them from really good other people. Because really, really good kids do stupid stuff. They really do. And um, um, this, don't tell me about the really tight family friends that you trust. That's where it happens. Don't tell me about the, oh, the cousin's house. That's where it happens. Kids sleeping in their own beds. That's all I say. <laughs> because guess what? Then they grow up and they, they become college freshmen who say things like, I gotta get in my own bed, I can only sleep in my own bed. And they become that persnickety person that you want them to be. Then they can only sleep in their own bed. You don't want them to be people who can fall asleep everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, recreating the attachment village is looking around, realizing if my kid's not talking to me that much, who else are they talking to? And figuring out who are those very trusted people. And I know I'm in a lot of people's attachment village. And it's a, that's, a, that's a role I do not take lightly. I take it really, really, really seriously as a matchmaker back to mom and dad. But oftentimes, try to help mom and dad along with some, some of this stuff. But evaluating who is in your attachment village for your kids, um, if you feel like you've got a situation where, uh, you know what, I've got a kid at home who basically looks right through me, is acting like there's nobody home and I'm sitting right in front of her, then you're gonna wanna do something specific. Newfeld talks in his book about, he had these two teenage daughters, planning two trips in order to do this work. He took time off of work, he found out something that one of them really loved hiking, so he found a trail, he researched every single thing about it, and she's like, I don't really want to go. I don't, I don't want to go back for a friend. He's like, yeah, no, you can't, you're not bringing a friend, we're going, okay. So he takes her hiking, and it was excruciating. Not talking to him, this is so boring, being really, really difficult. And guess what, he waited her out. Because there's no pain like an attachment void pain. You can only hang in the void for so long till she had to turn back and be like, hey, this is the best that I got. And, and it was good because then he could be the compass. Because he had researched everything about the trail and knew everything about the, what she was interested in. Brilliant. So those, those are options. Like if you feel like, ah, oh, that's kind of like the, the direction that we might be going. Um, don't battle against the symptoms when they give pushback. Um, and that's really what reminded me of those, of, of those times that kids will come in and say, I have no one to talk to. Okay. Recall.
recall that peer orientation is an attachment affair. Your defensive instinct may want you to pull back out of that vulnerable territory where insults don't sting and your stomach is not turning. But when you pull away from your kid, when you pull away from your kiddo, even if you have a part inside you that says they deserve it and I'm actually tired of yelling, so in order to not, you know, possibly commit a felony, I better stop and pull away. <laughs> but when you do that, your child experiences it as rejection, pure and simple. They don't remember how odious they were just being. They experience that as rejection. So stonewalling a kid, silent treatment of a kid, is always painful. It's always painful, and people think reservations and therapy, you know, years later to unpack it. Okay. Am I okay on time, or are we coming to a close? It's okay? Okay, okay. So, a couple of other things here, because you know I want to talk about digital connections. Um, I'll just talk about digital connections. Okay. You shouldn't like them. Yeah, okay. So, the digital connections, it is an, it's an ability to stay connected with kids after really the design of kids being with kids, right? Like, that they, they leave school, they're there from seven to three, roughly, and then their three to 11 shift is like this whole other shift that they're now pulling, where they have to deal with the rash of whatever people are talking about. So, I would say, if you are in a camp and you've got children that do not have phones, Hold off on phones for as long as possible, and never, 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 never give a smartphone if you can not do that. And I know that's hard. Um, so my suggestions are this. Gab Wireless. I don't work for them. I don't even get any kickback. But they are a phone company that sells a phone that looks like a phone, and it is a phone, but it only is a phone. It doesn't connect to the internet. <clears throat> There's just a lot of time to be wasted if you have a device you know, that's all yours and you're on the internet. Gab Wireless also only does phone calls, texting, but no images, and I think it does like a map, so you can use it if you don't know where you are. Maybe it has a radio. Doesn't even let you download music on, on from Apple. So I, I do like them, and I've had uh, teenage clients get them and use them beautifully. I've had college students with porn addictions get rid of their Apple phones and switch to Gab as they heal from, from, in recovery from, from a pornography addiction. So I've seen it work really, really beautifully in people's lives. Um, I also recommend um, a, a browser service called Canopy.us that you can put on your computers and it, in live, real time, filters out any uh, nude images. And what's good about that is I know you have kids that need to get on the internet and find out who Charlemagne was. You know, I know that they're doing historical research and they're doing all this kind of stuff, I know. But, so the answer of like not using the internet is not great, so teaching them how to use it beautifully is really where we want to be. And when they accidentally click and they're looking up Charlemagne and that's not pulling up Charlemagne, that's not helpful, right? And then they feel shame and I would say nine times out of 10 they don't tell their parent. They accidentally saw something that they shouldn't see. And then they carry that shame that lives in their body. So that's very, very toxic, and so we want to prevent that, just as long as we can, so they can more make sense of it, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, it's never ideal to see, I mean, it flips me out, and I'm all grown up. So, okay. Um, 
there are other companies that do those kinds of phones, but I would say, um, and I think this is also Gordon Neufeld, creating structures and imposing restrictions in your family life. Structures and restrictions safeguard the sacred. Structures and restrictions safeguard the sacred. So here's my one prop I brought. I highly recommend everybody, women, go to Michael's and get one of these boxes that costs like five bucks and then a paint pen. And you, what you're going to do is you're going to put one of these somewhere in your house for devices. And you're going to show kids what it looks like to fast from devices, even if you fast from them one hour at a time. I know there are people in here who are holding the nuclear codes probably, okay? So you might not be able to fast from the device as much as the next person. But I want you to show your kids what it looks like. And they usually need to be like hit over the head with the, like, the example. So go do one of these. It can look like everything you want. Frankly, people support that which they help to create. So if you bring your kid on this mission, they will probably want to decorate the device box and then be all over you to put yourself in it and that will be, you know, a problem for you. But guess what? It will be good. It will be good. You don't have to fast from it all night long or whatever. You do what you need to do to take care of your life and your business. But showing the, the, the self-regulation and temperance it takes to just, let's put it all on here at least during dinner. Let's just start with that. It only took 21 minutes to eat. Cool. <laughs> okay? Then we pick it up. And just build. This is a muscle. Anything you practice, you get better at, for better or for worse. You can jot that down. Anything you practice, you get better at for better or for worse. So putting the, the, the phones in the box, that, that's a good thing to practice. Okay. Um, digital connections. Oh, I, I always, I would be remiss if I did not say my personal philosophy with young people who decide to ask their parents for their first phone by saying, I need to be in the group chat because that's where the homework is shared. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever heard that, then you know you've been told the biggest lie. Because that is not where the homework is shared. The homework is never shared in the group. People may mention it in the group track, but that is not the proper place to find the homework. So if you have a young person who says, I really gotta get cheat chat, mom, I gotta be on cheat chat all night. I gotta arrive some time of the night because I gotta find out what the homework is. <clears throat> Wrong. Also, you can blame me. That is not where the homework is. It's where smack is talked. Okay, I know, I know fifth graders. This is fifth grade. Someone said was really as a ball hog. I'm not kidding. They say they do that. When fifth graders talk about each other, they call each other things like being a ball hog at recess. But that's where it begins. How many of you have a fifth grader who know about ball hogs at recess? That's a thing. And when they begin to do that, they begin to unload and peer orient. From those young ages, you think they're over there talking about Mrs. So-and-so's science project. No, they are not. They're talking about who's a ball hug, and it only goes from there. Okay. <clears throat> Being a planner, staying one step ahead of kids in the um, vortex of peer interaction. Be prepared to endure and contain reactions that your rules and restrictions may provoke. The task here is to hold on to yourself. Family outings and holidays must be protected. Family celebrations, family games, family activities, all of those things that you may or may not have had as a young person yourself are what's going to right the ship here. 
and that's the good news, bad news, right? Up to you, Ooh, shoot, it's up to me. Um, that, that deciding, this is where it starts. The, this is where it starts. I'm going to have these family traditions, we're gonna do this family game, we're, we're going to work on this puzzle together, all these kinds of things where you are doing what kids ultimately want is to have permission to be in your presence. Just permission to be in your presence. And it's extra if you can cultivate that they feel that you are delighting in them. You guys, this lays the brainwork, the groundwork in the brain, but also in the heart, again, to realize that our Lord delights in us. That God delights in us. Just as we are right now, as we are. And it's such an amazing thing to be able to go home and give to your kids in that way. That they would be able to, you know, even approach our Lord because you've created this sense of, yeah, I just want to be in your presence, you're in mine, we're here together. So, okay. Um, <clears throat> that's what we've covered tonight. The keys to well-being, children and youth, what children need to truly mature, emotions and you, collecting our children and preventing peer orientation. There's a whole lot more in the book. Believe it or not, I feel like I cramped a lot in there. There's a lot more in the book, a lot of tangible stuff. Um, and I, I hope that, I sincerely hope that you will uh, get into the book. We're in the information age. It's always been the task of adults to inform their children, not only the content of information, but the context, timing, framing. That's always been a parent's right. That's always been a parent's right. Information's always been about what been one of the primary tools for raising children. What children need most is to be informed not about the world, but about themselves. They need to see their value and significance reflected in our eyes, affirmed in our voices, and expressed through our gestures. Google can never provide that. What they need most and what the internet can't give them is an invitation to exist in our presence. Peer-oriented children look to their friends for information and they and the instantly available internet. Parents can survive the hit to this role of provider. You may not be able to give it all the answers every time. So in that case, dig deep by becoming the child's answer. That's it.
but it's navigating very uncharted waters for us personally and digital, what did you call it? Uh, there's a group text saying, is your son going, is your daughter's a drama? And, and you do, you want them to be socializing with their friends and there's this sort of concept of <coughs> safety in numbers versus temperaments battling do, what, what do you choose as a parent saying, well, you okay, but he's a junior next year, he's got prom, he's driving. I mean, you can't, yeah. you, you gotta let him go versus, you know, you don't wanna go from one extreme where you're keeping him at home and having a game, mm -hmm. and then you're like, good luck, bye. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, how, do you, how do you navigate that? How do you, yeah. how do you chart those, how do you just navigate those, it's like letting go. Yeah. It's, it's a little scary when it's your first, or yeah. can you speak on that a little bit? Sure. Well, first, I just want to honor the, the tension that you feel inside you about it. Because I think that's very, very normal. Um, you're right. To go from being like, I'm watching them play a board game, to, okay, bye, like they're moving out. I'm, I'm you know, moving them out. Um, and, and there are stepping stones. And I think one of the biggest stepping stones with an event like that would just be like, I'm so excited for you. Get the parents' phone numbers, because I was going to chat with them real quick. And always be that parent. To be like, I just want to chat with the other parents. Just make sure everyone's on the up and up of like, you know, who's doing what and what if anybody needs anything. Just from a cheerful, open place. And that is just what we do in our family. File it, they don't have to know it. File it under, you know, rules and restrictions. But that's just what we do. Is I always chat with parents. And, let, and their kids, you know, they'll tell the other kids, oh, my dad has to call their mom. What if my mom has to call your mom? And, and, and that's fine. But I think... Kind of because it sounds like that sounds like a, like a maybe a pivotal thing in the in, in the friend group and they're all going to do it. It's a memory making thing that can all be really really good. But also, you know, events for 16, 17 year olds don't need to be 12 hour marathon events. And 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 kind of when you talk to the other parents about it, that's when you get a load of that usually. That wow, okay, they're getting they're going for breakfast and then we're not getting them home till 11 p.m. <laughs> Just like those long stretches of time. They do that. I know they do that. I hear about it all the time. They do these things. And, and so not every single event is going to be like, wow, here we go. Now we're just pure orientation. But just keeping them oriented to you as that compass, you know? And it helps to, to know the other parents involved. And if you get a big whiff of, oh, yeah, no, this is great. We did it, too. You know what? It'll be fun because then they'll go to Beach Week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Then you just know you're not on the same page as the parents. Just really quickly. Don't get me started on Beach Week. They don't get, nobody needs that. <laughs> they need it with you. They don't need it with their friends. There's a lot of your orientation there. But you, you, you feel that out from parents when you make those calls. Yeah. Um, good question. Yes? You talk about the parent orientation. Uh, I believe friendships are incredibly important. What do you uh, counsel girls on in terms of how to form good friendships? Yeah. Yeah, how to form good friendships, that's right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think, this is one of the trickiest things. Um, and of course, everybody here has probably chosen their daughter's environment, you know, as, as curated as much as you can. Because proximity is gonna be one of the biggest indicators of who your kid wants to grab onto and, and be a friend with, right? Um, and that feels good, that feels natural, that feels comfortable, but um, helping them choose really good friends 
in terms of what is a friend. A friend is someone who treats you with respect, treats you lovingly, doesn't um, make fun of you, someone who's thoughtful, makes you feel significant, they, they, you know, those kinds of things. Having conversations with girls like that, and then of course role modeling really good friends um, yourself, like, and, and being able to say that, like, oh, you know, Daddy and I are so happy we've been friends with so-and-so so long. They're always so thoughtful. They always remember, you know, the anniversary when we moved into the neighborhood. So the kids are hearing, like, through role modeling, what really good friends um, look like and behave like. You know, I, will, I can speak to one thing about friendships. Um, share, like, vulnerability is, pre is pretty tricky. Kids usually will hide big things from adults. They're fearful of getting in trouble. They let it hang out with their, their peers, their contemporaries. So reminding them that it would make sense if some of your friends dumped some really heavy stuff on you. I know that happens sometimes. I want you to know that's never, you're never going to be in trouble if you come and let me know something like that. If it's just really heavy on your heart. You know, because they do get into being each other's therapists. Even though they have zero percent skills and they're not being paid, they're just each other's therapists. And, and I know that's what they do, but you know, I often know it comes from a really good part of themselves. They're trying to be helpers. They have these natural caretaker parts, these nurturing parts, quite feminine. But, but I also know it's not indicated. And it can be really, really harmful. And helping kids know, like a really good friend knows where the boundary is in relationships. They know what's in their yard, they know what's in your yard. So if they've got really difficult stuff, they're not asking you to solve their, their, their uh, irritable bowel syndrome, why would they be asking you to solve their emotional problems? And I know that sounds fresh, but it's, but it's true. To help people understand, it's a boundary thing. And, 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 and mom and dad don't have friends that ask them to give them medical advice. Even if it's tempting. Even if it's, you had, you had IBS, what did you take? Even, you know, like it's tempting, but it's not always indicated. And it can be harmful because it can stop people from actually getting the care that they need. But it's a, it's a great question, because it's, it's tricky to help kids learn what healthy, beautiful friendship looks like, and really is. It almost has to be experienced. But you can talk about it a lot. Friendship done well, yes. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your talk. I thought it was very insightful, and I really had a couple of eye-opening moments. Um, you spoke about us as parents tonight, and the parents relationship to, to the daughters. Um, it seems to me, or it is my personal experience, that as a father, it's somewhat different from the mother's experience, especially with regard to the attachment. Um, I felt I was very attached to my daughters when they were younger. Now I have teenage daughters, and they give me looks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm daddy, you know what that means. Okay, you know? yeah. So, um, how about that? I mean, yeah. can you say something about the mother's role, the father's role? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and one that I, I hear often, that how does dad um, start to interact when, when she was a little one? So easy to be close, uh, not only physically, proximity-wise, but um, just, you know, the, that sense of real felt sense of safety for a little girl to be with her dad, you know? Um, I think, I think um, a father's uh, role in terms of just portraying a lot of steadiness, again, when I think about that quote, calmness is a graceful form of confidence, 
really speaks to the masculine in the household if, if, you, if you can get there, that a dad would be able to role model that in, in the attachment um, that no matter what happens, no matter what, what goes on, I'm like always, always here. I see you, I hear you, I'm here. They don't always want to talk about it because girls get embarrassed about certain things in front of, of their dads and that, that's okay. Um, so they may not have the same level of, like, on a verbal level, sharing those deep, kind of really soft, tender feelings. But I think the steady presence, the nearness, is actually something that matters a lot. The willingness to be near. Um, and then I think taking the cues kind of from, from Newfeld is to go into some of those physical things that girls will want to do with their dad that maybe not necessarily as much with mom. And it could be more sports. It could be more um, some other kind of intellectual thing that so has to do with your career. And to have a shared interest. Sameness is one way to reinforce attachment. You're tall like me. You've got blue eyes like daddy. Uh, you love math like daddy. Any shared quality. We don't love, I can't do math like my mom. <laughs> okay, that's not as helpful in terms of sameness. But, but and, and they will do it. They will look for any shake in the armor. So be like, that's why I can't do it. But to look for sameness is, is a really good way for fathers to keep that attachment going with, with daughters. Because I, I think you're right that it's, um, there's a more natural easiness with mothers. Not always, but oftentimes. Um, but I want to think more about that too. And I think I think if anyone else has something to offer, sir, do you have something in the back about that? Not about no, that. No, okay. Sure. Oh, yeah. is, there, is there any major difference between, let's say, your relationship with your daughter versus your relationship with your son? Um, from an attachment level, I would say no. But from an interpersonal level, yes. Because I think that gender matters in the body and soul. That's just gospel according to Laura. But that's, that's what I believe. Um, and, but from an attachment level, no. Kids are hardwired to really, really be attached to their mothers, particularly the first thousand days of life, from conception, thousand days, um, and then go through their whole lives. But both mom and dad can relate to both son and daughter in those similar attachment ways. And that's gonna be like that little list, proximity, sameness, um, belonging and loyalty, feeling significant, and being known. Those key things are, are both good for boys and girls. Thank you. I just wanted to say one thing and get your thoughts on it. First of all, thank you for the for your time. Um, the, some of the fathers had the benefit of having Dr. Leonard Sachs here a couple weeks ago, and he, he uh, recommended one of his books. I really want to read this book, but The Collapse of Parenting, and he dropped something in that that kind of blew my mind, which I think spoke to the question you asked, and I kind of wanted to get your take on how to instill virtue at home in our daughters. He said, uh, he was talking about the rebound effect, which is something as educator, I'm sure as a counselor, you know, how is, how is she gonna handle, you know, getting a, a phone or getting unfettered access to the internet in college? And once she rebound, it's kind of like very, very much the culture, all the kids in the class have this. Yeah. And he said, if you look at the data, you look at the science, very rarely do uh, conscientious, well-behaved kids 
turn into crazy adults. In fact, it's conscientious and well-behaved young people turn into conscientious and well-behaved adults. Mm -hmm. And that kind of blew my mind, because I'm like, that's it's so hard to resist that everyone in the class has one. Yeah. Um, but isn't she gonna go to college and get a phone and not drink alcohol, and then she's gonna go completely crazy? And you're like, ah, that's a good point. Let's give her everything. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, any tips yeah. as to how to start to teach that virtue of her? Sure. Okay, I think he's spot on. And I, I will add to that just in saying, the kid who goes completely nuts with anything, whether it's alcohol or just video games, I mean, or online gambling, people do wild things when they get to college sometimes. But when that happens, it's almost always a numbing activity to not deal with the feelings that they're feeling. So the way to interrupt that is help your kid never, ever, ever feel like they have to numb themselves from their emotions. That's actually the antidote, to not be isolated in the feeling that they're feeling. They've done many, many studies on this with addiction. The people who are alone in their feelings, it's very, very hard to tolerate. That's what hell is, is isolation. So, so when we experience that and that shame that comes with those feelings, and we feel like we've got nowhere to go, that we're going to have to reach to the right and left and anything that could numb us, including just scrolling through Instagram, not illegal, questionably if it's immoral to waste that much time, but like, right? Like, no one's going to be like, wow. My roommate's really got problems. She's just looking at Instagram a lot. Like, people don't report each other for that. They will maybe if they think the roommate's an alcoholic. But, like, the, it, it's paranoid to help kids understand you will have a lot of feelings in life. You always will. I have them, too. Daddy has them, too. We all have a lot of feelings. We've learned as we've gotten older different ways to express them, manage them, understand them, make sense of them, process them, feel them in the body. That's why some people are runners, you know? They, that's the way they process their feelings or, or whatever. Some people process their emotions through prayer. So if people understand that, if young people understand that, you're spot on. They're not going to become like intemperate emotionally when they get out of your rules and restrictions because you've taught them that they don't need to be that way, emotionally intemperate. Along those lines, question I had, the, the numbers of suicide rate amongst young people is sad. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of families, Catholic, religious, seeing the parents did all the right things, came out of nowhere. So how how does that reconcile with, yes, feelings are fleeting, uh, they don't last for What happens that it takes, I mean, is the feeling of wanting to commit suicide so fleeting, so quick, that if they just happen to do it and they're successful, or is there something much greater going on where then a particular feeling just becomes a, a really dominant part of it? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the kids where you where nobody saw it coming. So those are really hard circumstances, really hard. Um, in a particular way, you're, I don't know, it's, it's awful to see it coming, it's awful to be surprised. But as someone who, who would die by suicide, and um, you know, I think the, the piece about the peer orientation and not feeling connected, uh, not feeling treated well, not feeling, feeling a bit like a burden to friends, 
Um, that plays a piece. But I will say, I mean, one of the biggest things is that level of impulsivity. Because I, you know, from my understanding of everything I've read, it is usually like just right at that moment then, when, when it's a young young person often, is this level of impulsivity. Um, it's just very, very difficult. And I, I don't, um, I think long-standing mental illness can sometimes lead, you know, in those directions when it's been untreated. But what to say, what to say. Um, you know, it, it's possible for, for very, very tragic things to happen, even in the most ideal circumstances, and we know that. And that's part of being on birth and realizing we're, we're not in heaven yet. And this is the Valley of Tears, and there's some things we'll never understand the mystery of. Um, but what we can do is try, as long as we are here, to say, okay, these, this is the crew God gave me. This is them. Look at them right there. And just love them and love them. And, and, and then realize our Lord loves them more and his, you know, whatever he permits in his will. Um, but it's difficult to understand. I mean, what you're asking about is one of the difficult, one of most difficult mysteries, I think, of sadness that we ever have to contemplate. I've, I've found myself talking, you know, when, when we heard about people we knew that this happened to, basically having the quick come to Jesus talk with all of our poor kids and saying, hey, that is not a normal feeling. So if you ever feel that way, you can't just ignore it. Either. You have to talk. You have to talk to us or talk to someone in school. Yeah. But I don't think there's enough of telling kids that yeah. that is not a normal feeling. Yeah. You know, it's 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 normal to get angry, like you said, right? Uh, learning to, to temper and to manage. There are a lot of feelings that are normal mm -hmm. that we're all going to feel. But I don't think I don't think we've done enough as a society to tell people, you know, you should. That should never be anything you want. Yeah. If you ever get to that point, yeah. you need to see that actual um, health. Yeah. Just seeing it more and more. And you see it, you know, even people you don't know, you see it in the news or something that happened. And they're like, oh, we had no idea they were doing great in school, they were this or that, and then suddenly yeah. one day. Yeah. So, uh, okay, implicitly, yeah, you kind of answered, can be a, a, a part of that. Because yeah. I just wondered if they're just really, if they can get really good at fake. You know, oh, sure, yeah. Well, I think, I think, shameful feeling to want to hurt yourself or to, to, to kill yourself. And so I think that's why it's not talked about. Um, and I think that you're right. We need to go towards people who are hurting in that way and be able to say things like, this is so hard. This is so, so messy. No matter how messy it gets, how messy these feelings are, I'm with you in them. You can tell me your messiest, darkest stuff. Like it just be, you're not in trouble. You're never in trouble. You know, and I, because this is hard, and I'm with you, I'm not going anywhere. Those kinds of things. Um, and then if you're having that kind of conversation with the kid, you might want to talk to a professional as well. Because if you're sitting with yourself and you're teasing out, if you're talking about suicide with your young person, I highly, highly encourage you to go to a professional as well. Not in necessarily emergency room, but you know, unless they say, I, this is what I plan to do. But if you're even curious about that, if that's happening, that level of emotionality in, in your kiddo, to try to get in with a professional as soon as possible. Um, you know, parents would be right to be scared of those kinds of things. It's a scary thing. Um, but when we ask about suicide and we use the word suicide and kill yourself, it doesn't make the person more suicidal and kill themselves. We know that from data, and I know that from talking about it, that the moment we can put light on something, Shame can't live in darkness, you know? It has to have some light on it. And just saying, like, yeah, 
I wanted to take myself out. Like that's very freeing for people and they'll never do it. But just because they were able to actually say it to someone who's like, yeah, okay, yeah. That was preferable to the pain. I, okay, yeah. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.